My name is Art Cash, uh, discipleship pastor here at River Oaks, member of the preaching team. So if you're visiting with us, thank you. Thanks for being here today. Uh, we are in Ephesians, still uh, going through uh, our series all the way through Ephesians. Today we'll be in chapter 2, and specifically we'll be in verses 14 through 16. So if you come back next year, visit around Christmas, we may still be in Ephesians. That's okay. <laughs> this, is, this is a good thing, soaking in, in God's Word. So, is anyone familiar with the Christmas truce of 1914? A few hands, okay. Christmas truce of, of 1914. It had been five months since World War I had, had begun. And essentially, you had two fronts at this point, Eastern Front, Western Front, Germans entrenched on one side, Allied troops on the other. They were separated by this no-man's land of, of 100 to 200 yards. It was basically frozen mud, huge artillery holes uh, from, from the shelling, uh, frozen corpses of, of fellow soldiers that had been slain. This is what separated them. Trench warfare in December of 1914, it would have been brutal. It would have been frigid. It would have been bloody, but on Christmas Eve, something, something changed. Okay, the German troops be, began singing Christmas carols across no man's land to the other side. It, it began with still not, okay, that, that's silent night. They began singing back and forth across the line. The next morning, the German troops came out of their trenches unarmed, Eventually, Allied troops came out of their, their trenches as well, and then something remarkable happened. I mean, here, here, here are men who a few hours ago were trying to kill each other, and they started exchanging cigarettes and, and plum pudding. They even had a, a friendly game of, of soccer that they played together. So for one day in the middle of brutal hostility, there was peace. It was powerful. It was It was poignant. And it was utterly temporary. Christmas truce of 1914, while heartwarming, it's the exception. It's the except, exception to the nature of warfare. It's the exception to the heart of man. This story sticks out to us because it's a contrast to the norm. All we have to do is look at our country. We can just look around and see how bitterly we are divided. Perhaps for some of you, this is, this is in your own home. You, you can see it in your own home. There's, there's division. There's hostility. We know from the country, we know from the world, we know from potentially our own families that, that peace is not the norm. Man, do we want it. We need it. We need Exactly what the Jewish and Gentile Christians needed in this little church in Ephesus. They needed real peace, lasting peace, not only with each other, but with God. And we know that that can only come through one person. That can only come through the mediator, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh. So let's, let's look to chapter 2, and I want you... To, to follow along here, we're going to read through the end of, of chapter 2 because I want you to see what's being argued here. I, I want you to see what, what's being torn down and what's being created. 
So we'll start in verse 11, uh, chapter 2. Therefore remember that at at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you can see at the beginning... Of, of that section, no people, no hope. By the end, being built into something, in someone, in Christ. We're, we're going to see that this morning, specifically in, in 14 and through 16. Our main idea is this. The default position of humanity is hostility toward each other and toward God. Only in Christ can there be true peace with each other. And with God. So we'll see that the flow like this in, in verse 14, he himself is our peace. We'll see that peace is a person, not a substance and not a thing. In 14 and 15, we'll see that Jesus abolishes and then he creates. Again, bouncing off the negative to the positive. You'll see this argument back and forth in this passage. He destroys, he abolishes, he makes, he creates. He does this through his perfect obedience to the law. Verse 16, Jesus kills hostility and reconciles us to God. That is through his perfect sacrifice on the cross. So verse 14, he himself is our peace. Clearly we can see that peace is is a theme through this section of Scripture. We see it four times in verses 14 through 17. So what comes to mind when, when you hear the word peace? Maybe if you have small children, you associate the word peace with quiet. I know I do. Okay, think about the movie, What About Bob? All right, you be peace, I'll be quiet. Okay, we want peace and quiet. That that point where the the conversation volume level at dinner is to the point where you're like, all right, I got to step out for a second. So maybe if you are in a large family, you're thinking peace is associated with quiet. Perhaps you think of a conflict, a disagreement that you're in, and you just long for it to be over. 
You, you, you want the cold shoulders and, and the distance and the relationship to stop and for things to just go back to normal. Maybe the conflict has festered to the point that you dread the next time, the, the, the next call, the next text, the next time you see the person. At this point, you would, just, you would settle for the hostilities to cease and you just want the emotional hand grenades to stop being lobbed back and forth. But settling for cessation and hostilities, that's not peace. We think back to our World War I Christmas truce and we get a glimpse of how worldly peace at its best, it's only temporary. Worldly peace at, at, its, at its most poignant, it's only partial. It involves coalitions and ceasefires and compromises. Biblical peace is different. Biblical peace is not just the absence of hostilities and conflict. It's about the presence of something. It's about the presence of harmony. It's about the presence of actions, of being unified with another person, grounded so deeply in Christ that there's no longer division. So, Paul, I love it. He, he, he's so helpful to us. He he teaches by contrast, right? So if he's talking about peace, the opposite of peace is hostility. He wants us to see the contrast. He wants us to see the contrast, so we'll end up asking the question, how? How do I move? How do I move from, from a, a nature of hostility to one of peace? How does it happen? So what's clear in this passage and I hate to give you the Sunday school answer, but we're in church and it's Sunday, so it's okay. <laughs> What's clear from this passage is the answer is Jesus. Look, look at everything he does in this passage. Just, just look back at it with me for a second. Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus made us both one. Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus abolished the law of commandments. Jesus creates in himself one new man. Jesus makes peace. Jesus reconciles us both to God through the cross. Jesus kills the hostility. How? I hate to do this to you, but we're going to come back to that in verse 16. Okay? We're going to come back to how. Trailer is, it's, it's through the cross. Okay, so you may be with me on what Jesus has done. Maybe you, you hear, all right, my, my default nature is, is hostile. Really? I mean, is, it, is that fair? Is that overstating the, the case, Art? It, hostility? Here's what I would submit to you. If your natural position is self-centered, if it's self-driven, if it's self protective, if it's self-referenced, then it follows that that self-focus will come at the expense of others. That is hostility. Perhaps there are those that you, you, you're keeping your distance from. Maybe you're just indifference, indifferent towards. Man, is that really hostility? Yes. Yes, I love how Powelson helps us see it in his book, Good and Angry. Some form of hostility lurks in every relationship that's characterized by cool or chill. Who is that in your life right now? That that characterizes your relationship with them. 
all human reactions and emotions, including distance and indifference, are variation on themes of love and hate. So even now, as a Christian, where does this lurk for you? This domesticated, calmer, cooler, maybe more mature in your mind version of hostility. Where does it lurk for you? Distance, coolness, indifference. Ask the Spirit to help you see. So what do we do? What do we do with our hostility problem? Well, we we go to Scripture. We go to Scripture. I I want you to see verse 14. Four. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit. You've got to trust me on this, but we're going to start with four. Okay, Four. That means it's directly connected to what came before it in verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember just a few verses back in in 5 through 7, the, the glorious truth of our union with Christ. You have been made alive together with Christ. He is in you. You are in him. So we see that peace is not a thing but a person. So that hostility that's lurking in your mind and heart, you run to a person. You run to the Son, and, and you confess, and you repent, and you ask Him, please, please give me more of your Spirit. Please help me see that I treated you with hostility, and you treated me with grace. So by your Spirit, help me then to treat others how you've treated me. Then we see in, in the rest of this passage just how Jesus has done this. How has he reconciled two bitterly divided people and how has he reconciled them to God? Verses 14 and, and 15. Look at the, the second half of 14 here. He has broken down in his flesh a dividing wall of hostility. 15a, the beginning of that, by abolishing the lawful, the law of commandments and ordinances. He abolishes division so he can create unity. So think about this little church in, in Ephesus. They are under significant threat. The emperor is Nero. Anybody knows anything about him? Not, not, not friendly to Christianity. Like to, to, to burn Christians as candles in his garden. So the external threat is, is real. The, the merchants, the silversmiths in Ephesus, they don't like the Christians too much. Okay, it's, it's hurt their business. So the external threat is real. Then inside their church, massive differences. Jewish believers going in one direction, Gentile believers headed in another direction. So how can can this little church even be prepared for what the external threat is when the internal threat is so significant? So what's dividing them? We see it in verse 14, the dividing wall of hostility. Now Patrick shared with us last week that 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 wall could mean the the literal wall in in the temple mount that, that kept the Gentiles out of the temple and divided them out and if they crossed that on penalty of, of death, they were taking that into their own hands. We know back in Acts 21 that Paul had firsthand experience with this where he was 
accused by Jewish leaders of doing that very thing, of taking Greeks past the wall. But what Paul might have been implying by the wall, he makes clear in verse 15. The division comes from the law. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Not abolish. We might want to soften a little bit. Does, does Paul really mean abolish? Yes. It means to put an end to, to do away with, to nullify the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. That basically means the Mosaic covenant, including moral, civil, and ceremonial law. All of it. Now, here, here's the tension. All we got to do is think back to our series in Matthew, and, and Jesus is like, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So, so what's happening here? This is not half measures. Paul piles up phrases in verse 15. Law, commandments, ordinances. He wants us to feel the weight of the severity of the law. Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying exactly what Jesus has done. He's torn that down. And brothers and sisters, that's good news for us. If he doesn't tear that down, if he doesn't fulfill the law, we have no hope. Just go back just a couple verses. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants. That's our fate apart from Jesus tearing down the dividing wall and abolishing the Mosaic Covenant. You and I, brothers and sisters, we are under a new covenant. A covenant of grace. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10.4. The moral content remains, but Jesus in his flesh tore down the division. Dear Christian, this is why when we say, when you... When, when a person converts to Christianity, they, they're not exchanging an old set of rules for a new set of rules. According to Romans 7, 4, you died to that old set of rules. You died to the law for a reason, so that you could then be wed to another. His name is Jesus. He was raised from the dead, and you belong to him now, not the law. The, the letter of the law brings death, and the Spirit brings life. That is a good news of this division and this hostility being torn down. But we can sympathize, though. We, we can sympathize with the, with the Jewish believers. Okay, they, they've, they've had a way of doing things for a long time. Laws, commandments, ordinances, a way of life, traditions... These, these Jewish believers may have thought, man, Paul's taking something away from me. He's not. He, he's replacing the law with the law fulfiller. He's giving them Christ. So we can have sympathy for them. We, we don't, we don't, most of us as, as Gentile Christians, we don't, we don't sit in judgment of them. We, we have sympathy, just like we would for a prisoner who's been Imprisoned under the law, but a prisoner who's been institutionalized for so long that, that the thought of freedom is terrifying. The, the, the drug addict who, no matter what you've tried to do and, and what you've tried to say, they, they're so committed to continuing to do what it is that's killing them. 
so we can have sympathy for this new Jewish believer who's struggling with this truth. Change is hard. We know personally how easy division becomes a habit, how feeling superior can become just a pattern of thought. You, you begin to, to see people in terms of, I'm better than, I'm less than. Judging others becomes a way of life. How many times do we even enlist Scripture or enlist God to our cause? Both sides in their trenches in World War I firmly believed that God was on their side. Where does this show up in your life? Where does the, the thought of God is on my side in this division show up instead of humility, instead of what we have in Christ? The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to use loaded, radical language to communicate just what Christ has done in tearing down the wall of hostility, in abolishing the law. Think about it. We, we divide over preferences all the time. Our default position is, I want it my way. Where do you find yourself dividing from people who don't want it your way? What would it look like for you both to want Christ's way? So Paul doesn't stop at just telling them what Jesus has torn down. He doesn't stop with just the destruction. He reminds them of who and what Christ has, has made them to be. I think about it like the, the recruit, uh, the, the young person that goes through uh, training to become a Marine, and, and they get to the, the end of that. And you correct me if I go off. Okay. And they, they hit the crucible, okay, where no food, no sleep, uh, very little uh, care towards them, being broken down completely to where they come out the other side, no longer a recruit but a Marine. Well, every analogy breaks down for us because in, in our case, Jesus Christ went through the crucible. He was torn down in order to make us into something new. We see this twice. We see making and creating in our passage. Verse 14, he makes us both one. Second half of 15, so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of two, making peace. What's this new humanity? What's this new man? So far, we've talked a lot about peace between individual believers. But there's a bigger picture here, brothers and sisters. The stakes are higher than, than personal peace and reconciliation with another. The new humanity that Christ has made in himself is the church. Not a building, but the people with whom Christ has united himself. Think about who you were. Not a people. Without hope. Alienated. Strangers. People who, according to verse 17, were both far off and near. This, this church he's made is a, is a church of Jewish believers who were near, Gentile believers who were far off. The church is made up of those who were once strangers and aliens. Christ has now made you citizens with the saints, members of the household, the family of God, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a chosen race. It's neither Jew nor Gentile, but Christian, either black or white, male or female, northern or southern, rich or poor, but Christian. So think about this. This is, this is unity. This is not uniformity. The, the differences that we have, they're for our sanctification. I mean, think about this. If we were us southern folks, if we were a little judgmental, uh, you know, of, of the northern folks, we'd be without a senior pastor. <laughs> That'd be an issue. If, if you northern folks were judging us southern folks, folks for what we really meant when we say, bless your heart, <laughs> there, there'd be more conflict. Okay? The differences are for our sanctification. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed of, of, of what it used to look like for me to walk into Heritage Baptist Church in Johnson City, Tennessee as an unconverted man and how I judged. I, I, I put people in two categories, cool, uncool, which is terrible because I don't think the kids even use that word anymore. Okay, So judgmental. So harsh. Could this person help me in my career? Would I enjoy being around this person? Would they make me laugh? Would they make me happy? It was all about my preferences. Here we have a church created in Christ. Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That is a radically different picture. The only division that remains is who's in the old Adam and who's in the new Adam, who is in Christ. It matters. What what Christ has done in creating in himself the church is radical. It's, it's, It's so far above what we can imagine that when you look over at Ephesians 3, 10, the, the wisdom of Christ creating the church... He's basically saying, here's the church, and he's testifying about you and all your idiosyncrasies, all your differences that he's brought together in his son, and you are a witness to heavenly powers, principalities, rulers, and authorities. You combined in Christ together, God is able to say, that, those are my people. This is, this is how wise I am. I've taken... The, the island of misfit toys, <laughs> and I've brought them together in my son. That's my daughter. That's my son. That's my family. That's, that's my son's bride testifying to heavenly authorities and rulers. This is why Jesus Christ alone is the cornerstone of peace. He's the cornerstone of one who makes new. There's no theory, there's no therapy. There's no idea, there's no, no concept or philosophy that can make you new the way Christ has done in making you the church. You're a new creation. And this has massive implications for us. One, what is your view of the church? How high is your view of the local church? In our case, for for members and and regular attenders, I mean River Oaks. Ephesians is is directed to a gathered body of believers with gigantic division and differences. 
And through this letter, the Spirit is telling them what they actually have, which is unity in Christ. Well, that unity can't happen for us. Not if we view church like a consumer. If church to me is how, I put that in the same category of of what dry cleaner I use, what streaming service I choose, what gym I go to. If it's just one thing along the list of things that suit me, unity will elude us. As a gathered body of believers, we should be fiercely devoted to one another. Out of that devotion should flow a desire to outdo one another in honor, in kindness, in service. Brother and sister, we're, we're growing, but, but we haven't arrived. We're not there yet. I love you, so here's your hard word. Okay, we, we may love the idea of planting a church. And brothers and sisters, if, if we can't manage enough volunteers to, to help Metri teach our, our children, which, by the way, is one of our three Ds, to make disciples at home. If we have to beg, borrow, and scrounge for Sunday school teachers, we're not ready to plant a church. We have maturing to do if we're so comfortable in our growth groups that we're unwilling to invite new people in. Maybe we don't do it assertively. It's kind of passive. Maybe don't, don't greet someone. Don't, there's a person, a face you, you don't recognize in, in first or second service and you think, ah, man, I really like my growth group the way that it is. We, we've got growing to do there. If we're unwilling to even consider branching a growth group into two so that more people could come into the unity we have, we have more growing to do. Here's a third rail that preachers aren't supposed to talk about, tithing. If you've been coming to River Oaks for very long, you know we don't do long topical series on how we should give and, and press for money. But we do preach expositionally. And here it is. What is your view of the church? Do you view tithing and giving as what it is? Worship. Worship. Is your conscience informed by the word in your generosity? What is your view of the church that Jesus Christ has created in himself? We know Jesus' view. We can, we can flip over to Ephesians 5. I think that it's interesting that, that that's Chris's sabbatical, okay, that when we're going to be in Ephesians 5. <laughs> okay, so we can be reading that and, and be going, wait, this is how a husband is to treat a wife. This is how a wife is to treat a husband and, and get caught up in the, in the details of that and miss what's actually going on. This is how Jesus treats his church that he lays down his life for her, that he nourishes her, that he cherishes her. Is that how you feel about your church? Is it a matter of convenience and comfort or cherishing and commitment? This passage forces us to ask that question. Two, a high view of peace within the church. It's in our union with Christ that he's our peace. It flows out of our union with Christ that we can be at peace with each other. 
Ephesians 4 tells us exactly what that unity should look like. You can flip over there with me or scroll down. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1. Again, he's talking to these folks that were so divided. He's brought them together. And now he's saying, you're in Christ. This is how it should be in Christ. Here's what he says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he goes on, one body, one spirit that you've been called. That's a church. Over and over we see, here's what Christ has done. Here's what you are to do in light of it. We're to treat each other this way because this is how Christ has treated us. That's the law of Christ that we're now under. Think about Galatians 6, bearing one another's burdens. We get to participate in the fulfillment of the law of Christ. The Spirit grows this in us. He grows the desire for peace so that when we fail, we're free. Not free to turn inward. Not free to remain divided. We're free to confess. We're free to repent and to continue to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called. So brother or sister, if you're in conflict right now with another believer, if you've acted with anger towards another believer, if you've lacked gentleness, patience, and love with another believer, if you've ignored the unity you have in the Spirit and broken the bond of peace, please humble yourself. Humble yourself. Confess, repent, go and be reconciled. Be who you are now in your union with Christ, not who you were. An unwillingness to pursue peace, that's passive hostility. Peace, as far as you are able, I know there are exceptions. I'm not talking about abuse. Okay? I'm not talking about situations like that. But peace, as far as you are able, that's our only choice, and it's the right choice. How? Okay, I hear you. We, we need to pursue peace. We're united. We're, we have our differences, but we're united. How? How do we do this? Peace came through the blood of Christ. Peace with each other came through his flesh. Peace with each other came through the cross. We consider what it cost our triune God to abolish division to destroy hostility, and to create peace. Then we're free. We're we're free to be ruthless in examining our own motives. We're, We're free to scrutinize our own desires in conflict and submit those to Christ. By grace, we have been reconciled with each other, so we have the power to pursue this with one another. This this new creation, this church, this divided people, it's only possible through Christ. It's only possible because he reconciled us to God. So we talked a lot about horizontal peace, peace within the church. All of that's irrelevant. 
if we don't have peace with God. Jesus kills the hostility and he reconciles us to God in verse 16. If you were over in four, flip back with me to, to two. We'll start at the end of 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, that one body is the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So here's one of those truths that you just... You don't preach during the, you know, the, the church growth, okay? That's not the uh, appealing to the masses truth, but it's right here in Scripture. You weren't neutral towards God before he saved you in Christ. You were his enemy, according to Romans 5.10. Here's even a, a, a less popular truth. The, the hostility went both ways. While our hostility towards God is wicked because it's self-referenced, his hostility towards us in our sinful state, precise, holy, righteous. We just have to look back a few verses to see that we were dead. We were children of wrath. We were destined for hell. His righteous hostility was poured out on his son for our sake. God's wrath rightly deserved for, for us poured out on a son. That's what reconciliation means here. This word reconciliation, we, it's, it's a unique version. We lose it in the English, okay? It's, it's unique in the sense it's only used a couple other places in Scripture, and it means, for lack of a better phrase, super reconciled, abundantly reconciled, overly reconciled. We see it in Colossians 1.21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's the hostility and then the reconciliation. How? I told you we'd come back to this. In his body, in his flesh, Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Okay, when we think about Christmas, please don't give in to, to the, the stress of uh, gift giving. I don't have all my, my gifts lined up. Maybe you were preparing a sermon last week and you haven't bought a single gift for anybody in your family. This guy with two thumbs, okay? It, don't give in to that, all right? I'm preaching to myself. Don't, don't settle for these general warm feelings like the, the, the hallmark Christmas. I'm not knocking it well, a little. Okay, but if you, if, like if you just settle for, for Hallmark, you would think, man, Christmas is about a fairly attractive couple, one wearing red, one wearing green. She's too busy. He drives a truck with a dog in their snow. Okay? <laughs> don't give in to it. Don't, don't give in to this general sentimental warm feeling. I, I truly believe that a lot of that stuff is created. It's made to create a desire in you which is false. It's not real. To make you nostalgic for something that's not even real? Oh, we, we, we have a perfect Christmas. Our joy is tied to the harshest reality. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus Christ was born of a woman under the law, 
in the flesh as a baby in a filthy manger in a guilty world. He's born under the law so he could perfectly obey it. And by faith, what we get for Christmas, we get the great exchange. He, he gets our guilt. He gets our sin. We get, by faith, his righteousness, his perfection. We get redemption and reconciliation. Complete peace. Complete reconciliation. The super reconciliation, which means restoration. Which means complete harmony with God forever. No ceasefires, no half measures, no truces, no temporary peace. We, dear brothers and sisters who once were alone and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, now because of the blood of Christ, we are presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before God, united to his church, united in his son, and fully reconciled to God the Father forever. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the truth and the beauty of your word. We thank you that you have abolished the dividing wall of hostility that, that divides us from each other and that divides us from, from you. Father, that is, is grace that's hard to describe. It's, it's a gift that's it's hard to fathom. Help us see it. Father, when we're tempted in, in any number of directions by our own selfishness, our own preferences, our own desires, Father, help us see who we are now as your church united to your Son, in your Son. Father, we thank you for the truth that your Son came in the flesh to take our shame, to take our guilt, and to give us his perfect righteousness. Thank you for the most incredible gift that has ever been. We pray these things, and we praise your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.